time and time again, we see decisions every Thursday at city councils or every Tuesday at board of supervisor meetings that continue to direct investment away and around low-income communities of color. We continue to see decision-making occur in a way that continues to impact communities in a way that's not beneficial and that culture needs to change. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Hi there, and welcome to this week's episode of Infinite Earth Radio, where each week we interview thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. Today we're going to learn how we can listen to the voices of our fellow citizens who live in the most environmentally overburdened and unhealthy neighborhoods and work to empower them to advocate for themselves and create healthier and stronger communities. Vernice, let's introduce our guests. Dr. Craig Martinez joined the California Endowment in May 2012 as a program manager to work towards policy and systems changes that will result in improved neighborhood environments that support health. Prior to joining the endowment, Dr. Martinez served as a health policy advisor in the Health Policy Office of the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, or the Health Committee. He is based in the California Endowment's Los Angeles office. Veronica Garibay and Phoebe Seaton are co-founders and co-directors of the Leadership Council for Justice and Accountability, a not-for-profit based in the agriculturally rich San Joaquin and East Coachella Valleys that works alongside the most impacted communities to advocate for sound policy and eradicate injustice to secure equal access to opportunity regardless of wealth, race, income, and place. Thank you all for being with us today. So, Craig? Let's start with you telling our audience about the California Endowment and its mission. Sure. The California Endowment is a health foundation, and we use that very deliberately. Essentially, we are interested in promoting communities where people live, work, and play, and health just doesn't happen in the doctor's office. It happens where people are living, whether they go to school. The factors around them and communities that surround them help either create opportunities or barriers to optimal health. The California Endowment, we are committed to promoting health and equity, so ensuring that uh, people who live in California that, that have these access to resources are able to, to have opportunities to be healthy and to, to have uh, healthy, vibrant communities. So, Craig, in an article announcing your appointment, Daniel Zangale, Senior Vice President of the California Endowment, said, time and again, research has shown that health happens in our neighborhoods far more than in a doctor's office. Can you explain to our audience what Mr. Zingali meant by this and how the California Endowment is addressing this issue? For example, if a doctor says to someone who has a chronic disease, you need to eat healthier, and in their community they're not able to access the fresh fruits and vegetables, that points to the importance of having those type access to those resources in your community. Um, if a doctor tells you you need to exercise, and you're not in some of our communities that we work in, there is there are no sidewalks, there's no lights, uh, they're not safe. People are having to cross 
you know, multiple gang territories. It's really hard to promote healthy communities when you don't have those things in place that help to promote healthy behaviors. And, Craig, can you share with our audience why, on a personal level, this work is important to you? Sure. So I grew up in a a low-income rural community. We didn't have access to a lot of resources, and a lot of times we were just overlooked by county decision-makers, local decision-makers. I became very involved at a very young age in ensuring that people, you know, took our needs seriously and that we weren't overlooked. You know, we wanted to make sure that we had a right, quite honestly, to have access to those things that would help our communities thrive. So we do this in a lot of different ways, but if you were to ask any of our partners on the ground or any of our executive team, there's two primary things we do. Number one, and similar to my own experience, is building people power. So ensuring that people have access to the resources and all the things they need to be engaged in those decisions that impact their health. Number two is changing the narrative. A lot of the times the decisions are made about land use or the criminal justice system that they don't necessarily focus on health, even though they have a huge impact on health. So we focus on ways that we can help to make those connections and that those decisions have an impact on health and bringing that to awareness of decision makers and community members. Fantastic. Okay, so maybe we could uh, spend a little time exploring the work that you're doing in the San Joaquin Valley of California. Veronica or Phoebe, either one of you, please feel free to answer this question. But for our listeners who are not familiar with California, can you give a quick geographic description of the San Joaquin Valley and talk a little bit about the economic and social conditions there generally? Sure, great. For those not familiar with California, the San Joaquin Valley is located in the center of the state. Um, it's the inland inland counties of the state. It's an eight-county geographic region stretching from San Joaquin County all the way to Kern County. You're about three hours away from Los Angeles and three hours away from San Francisco. We're right in the middle. We are the breadbasket of the world. The agricultural community drives our economic engine. Interestingly enough, there are nearly 4 million people living in the San Joaquin Valley, majority Latino community, Latino region. We have really high levels of poverty, really high levels of unemployment. While we are the breadbasket of the world and agriculture drives our economy, our farm workers live really below poverty levels and the opportunities just aren't there for upward financial mobility. We also have a number of other issues, low educational attainment, Um, We have a lot of opportunity in the region, but also and a lot of opportunity to make some change. But some of these dynamics need to change for that to be able to happen. And and individuals need to be able to access those opportunities to do that. Uh, Can you speak a little bit about the health outcomes overall within the San Joaquin Valley? Most of our community is plagued with really poor health outcomes. We have really high asthma rates, really high rates of cardiovascular disease. A lot of our communities don't have access to safe and affordable drinking water, which poses a problem. There's a significant amount of environmental degradation as a result of oil, agriculture, and development activities that occur in the region. The California Environmental Protection Agency recently released a tool called Kel Screen that looks at multiple indicators of disproportionate impacts based on environmental conditions and social demographic indicators. And the San Joaquin Valley ranks amongst the top most impacted communities in the entire state of California. Great. Can I add to that just in terms of in doing statewide and national work or having national partners? 
I think the thing when partners come to the Valley that's most shocking, surprising to them, is that there are communities in the Central Valley that really feel like you're in developing country. They, they lack just basic infrastructure. There are no roads. There's, there's no water systems. And when they do have water systems, they have high levels of things such as nitrates, uranium, and, and obviously things brought in But I, I think what's most surprising to people is that even in this day and age, that those type of communities that exist and that no one is really paying attention to. The conditions are a little bit different, and there's a lot of irony, particularly given that it is the breadbasket of the world, and or at least the breadbasket of the United States, and that people there don't have access to the healthy foods and the healthy things they need to have optimal health, which is tied to a lot of chronic disease and a lot of a lot of other health challenges. Building on what Craig said, I, he noted that there's conditions in communities in California and people aren't paying attention. Sometimes we see that people are actively ignoring or continuing to neglect communities where people have lived for many, many decades and choosing instead to invest the future of the region, the future of the cities in new areas. And so one of the things, for example, that we see is through you know, omission and, and, and commission, local and regional and even statewide governments taking action to further marginalize existing communities, and which in turn impacts the health. So one community we work in, for example, the city has decided to put all of the industrial development in one lower income area and the better housing in another area. And that, of course, impacts air quality, but many other issues that impact opportunity and health. One of the things that Renice and I would like to embed into this podcast in some way is, you know, within the smart growth community and the sustainability world, that there's a conversation about building healthier communities to get better health outcomes and that there's a return on that investment. But if you focus that investment in the communities that have the worst health outcomes, your return on investment would be far greater than building new bike lanes in uh, Palo Alto. So as we move to the interview, the degree to which we can communicate that, that notion that the health outcomes in these communities are really bad, and if you want to have a conversation about these issues, this ought to be ground zero. This is where we should be making our investments. The thing that what is really interesting about what you just said is that we've seen this across California, that the health concerns are the things that get people really interested things that kind of relate, you know, to people's experience. Phoebe and Veronica can tell you, obviously, about their, their conversations with local decision makers who are concerned about, you know, our grandkids won't come visit us because the air quality is so bad in the Central Valley. That's kind of the hook, but it really is figuring out how to use that hook and being able to demonstrate the economic benefits for communities. You know, when you have smart growth and development in these communities, it helps to address issues related to natural resources, economic development, and really sort of dealing in these areas where you have a lot of you know, moderate to conservative decision makers, it's about using that health message, but it's also being able to make the economic case. The moral imperative only takes you so far with respect to health, but it's really about driving those other factors. Being able to talk about those other factors that helps to drive some of this work. So Veronica Phoebe, can you tell us about the organization, the Leadership Council for Justice and Accountability, and what motivated you to found the organization, and what kind of work do you do? We started Leadership Council in 2013. We both really felt that there was a need to direct advocacy towards transforming 
local and state decision-making culture and really building people power, as Craig says, and really working towards sustained civic engagement, which we fundamentally believe is the primary tool to create opportunity and fundamentally address the dynamics and the inherent challenges in the current system that continue to perpetuate patterns of poverty and patterns of exclusivity and continue to allow environmental and social and economic impacts on on low-income communities of color. We, through community education and organizing, policy and legal advocacy and, and research, we really work towards co-powering communities across the San Joaquin Valley to engage in decision-making, to be a part of decision-making, and to educate our decision-makers about the importance of investing in existing communities and investing in smart and growing in smart ways in a way that will have a return on those investments and will elevate and improve our health outcomes, our economic outcomes, our social outcomes, and really create a region that is meant to be really powerful that's supposed to be really powerful and really focus on that inherent power that community residents have to be able to move an agenda. Time and time again, we see decisions every Thursday at city councils or every Tuesday at board of supervisor meetings that continue to direct investment away and around low-income communities of color. We continue to see decision-making occur in a way that continues to impact communities in a way that's not beneficial, and that culture needs to change. The system itself needs to change, and we really felt that there was a need to move in a more systemic way, in a more strategic way, and really start thinking about how do we leverage our skills, our resources, acknowledging that community has equal, if not more power than any other stakeholder engaged in decision-making today, leverage the skills of our organizational partners and resources that we have in the region to enact local and state change. And there was this other need where what was happening at the state level wasn't really corresponding to the needs and priorities of the inland regions of the state. In, you know, San Joaquin Valley and East Coachella Valley is where we're focused. And we really felt that there was a need for a strong presence in both Sacramento and in these two regions to align local, regional, and state policy in a way that really works for our communities, in a way that really prioritizes investments in existing communities, not just to improve from now on or improve what has happened, but also to address what has happened and the historic neglect and what look at what that has caused in our communities and making sure that we're addressing that moving forward. Excuse me, I just wanted to highlight sort of the, the niche that Veronica pointed out, especially well, on the state side, but also on the local side that just happened Recently, there's a lot of publicity and conversation now about a fairly high-profile mayoral race in the city of Fresno, and there's a lot of the discussion is around growth agendas and development agendas, and the two main newspaper or press folks that are covering this race and look at development and growth called us out on Twitter for what it's worth and said, I wonder what leadership council is, how they're going to weigh in on the growth agenda of these, all these candidates which I think you know, speaks to the fact that we have elevated this conversation of smart and equitable growth, at least in Fresno and throughout the region. Can you share for our listeners who live in communities that are facing similar challenges, where they are working with communities that are not being heard, that their voices aren't being heard appropriately, kind of a little maybe more specifically, how do you accomplish what you're trying to accomplish? Like, what are the specific steps to help folks give those folks a voice and how are you organizing them to do that? 
As an example, we have one community that we're working with in Fresno County, and the community residents sort of contacted us primarily because their water was really brown. It had an, an awful smell. And they were not being allowed to participate in their local community services district, which for an unincorporated area is the entity that provides municipal services. Whereas in a city, you have a city council that oversees and provides services. In unincorporated areas, you have special districts that sort of fill in that role and provide that service. And in this community in particular, sort of the call was, our water's really bad. We don't know what to do about this. And we think that there's meetings happening around this issue, but we're not being allowed to participate. And so the way we approached the work was meeting with community residents who had called, doing door-to-door flyering to do a community meeting, a large community meeting, going door-to-door, asking questions, meeting folks. And through those efforts, to sort of you start identifying what the priorities are and what the community really wants to focus on. This community in particular, drinking water was a primary priority and addressing drinking water and understanding why their drinking water was contaminated with high levels of arsenic. And that sort of became the rallying campaign. But in developing relationships with the community, other priorities sprung up. So they don't have paved roads, they don't have sidewalks, substandard housing, they don't have street lights, they don't have safe access to fresh fruits and vegetables, even though they're surrounded by miles and miles of agricultural production. They don't have adequate transit to access employment opportunities, educational opportunities, healthcare. So all of these issues kept coming up. And what was really important was developing that relationship and the trust with community residents that we were an organization that was not going to, that isn't going to drive the agenda. We're going to be a tool to support their agenda and support their priorities, that we are a tool that they can use And in recognizing the power that community has, we work towards co-powering community residents to be able for all of us to understand how drinking water is regulated, who's responsible, who's the entity, who funds this, what are the opportunities, how do we get involved, how do we elevate this at a larger or higher level when it's not being looked at at the very local sense. And that is, you know, we develop the relationships and and trust is so important in communities, especially communities that have been excluded, communities that have been intimidated, communities that have been told not to participate, communities that have been engaged and then sort of left hanging without any other follow-up or any other information. That trust is so important. And the belief that we all, that sort of understanding that there's co-powering, that opportunity to elevate each other's power is so important, leads to that change. And eventually the community is self-organized. This community in particular does their own organizing. They establish a community group where all of their priorities are run through, where they are the face of their struggles and they are taking that with them and and carrying that message of the importance of investing in, in existing communities over new development, not just because of the need for safe and affordable drinking water, but it's inherently an equity issue. How are we continuing to divest away from these communities and growing away and around these areas without acknowledging that people live here and that people have been living here and that people in, in our communities drive our economic engine. So for us, it's, it's really about developing those relationships, developing trust with community residents and working together to really ensure that their priorities are addressed. And what we found is that once communities are engaged, we have convened sort of a regional committee of community leaders from Merced County to Kern County, where 
residents come together on a quarterly basis and community partners as well. And that sort of builds on social cohesion and creates that understanding that it's not just my community that is experiencing this issue. This is a systemic issue. This is something that is happening statewide. It's something that's happening across our valley. How do we work together to make this happen? And that leadership is so key to enacting change. Can you share with our audience on a personal level why the work is important to you? Sure, I'll start. This is Phoebe, but I just wanted to follow up real quickly on the last question, which is just that one of the other things that we do is spend, obviously, an enormous amount of time with resident leaders, but making sure that there's shared understanding of some of the very complex issues that we're dealing with, which we feel is, you know, we feel that it's one thing to get a certain number of bodies in a room, but it's a much different dynamic when everybody has a shared understanding of what decision is happening and what's at stake and what the short and long-term implications are. And so that is a really major component of our work as well. And then uh, just in terms of why it's so important, I think there's what drives us or me is definitely the issue of fairness that, as I think Veronica has said several times throughout this interview, the residents are the drivers of the economy, are the drivers in, in large part of the culture of the Joaquin Valley, um, yet not yet um, drivers of decision-making, and that we want to create a more fair system where everybody plays a role and everybody derives the benefits of so much of what is happening in the state and in the region. Veronica, you want to take a crack at that question? Why, why is this work important to you on a personal level? Sure. I grew up in the San Joaquin Valley. I grew up in a small city, Parlier, in the county of Fresno, primarily Latino community, farm worker community. My parents are farm workers. I am from the communities I work with today. You know, growing up in the valley, I didn't realize that there was dynamics at play that, that continued the status quo and continued high levels of poverty and exclusion. And it wasn't until I started doing this work that I realized that there was something happening, that I realized that you know, my family didn't have access to safe and affordable housing for this reason. My family didn't have upward financial mobility opportunities for these reasons. So for me, it's really personal. It's really personal. And, and I am from these communities. I consider myself an ally because it impacts me, it impacts my family, it impacts my nephews and nieces, and it impacts our region. This is my home. I want to see a home where we all have access to opportunity. We all have access to be able to contribute and be able to be part of decision-making that impacts our lives in so many ways. Can I just add real quick? I mean, just one thing that I, I think is really important, and it's an important story to, to be able to tell what's happening in San Juan Key Valley because I know, you know, I did not grow up in San Juan Key Valley, but I grew up in a community that was very much tied to coal. You know, my family's coal miners. And the story of those communities in the valley is really the story of a lot of low-income communities, low-income communities across the nation. And I think that, for me, it's so personal because I, too, sort of have seen and know what it's like to be from a place where, you know, decision-makers aren't necessarily concerned about the lowest of the lowest-income residents of those communities. That they're, they're really sort of interested in, and kind of continuing to to separate people by, by income and being able to, you know, address the needs of kind of a select few and not necessarily the people who need it the most. And I think that's why it's so personal to a lot of us, particularly who are in this space. And these stories of the San Joaquin Valley are, are stories. There are a lot of similar stories across California that we help to support and being able to help prioritize the needs of the people who live in these communities that need the most 
support. I mean, I think that uh, we, we, we all take this work very seriously. And we take it very, it's very personal to all of us because a lot of us have come from similar communities or come from these very communities. You know, it's just really sort of critical to us because these are our families, these are our neighbors, these are the people that we know, and we want to ensure that they have the best, best possible. Another thread of what you've all shared right now is that this is a part of the country that really provides for the, the most basic fundamental needs of almost everyone in the country. Everyone is eating something that is grown in the San Joaquin Valley across the United States, but have no idea how that food is produced or the conditions in which the people who produce the food are living. And you're talking a lot about that, but it, it is a part of a bigger conversation about how invisible some really important sectors of our country and our economy are, and they're helping to make it possible for us all to live a certain quality of life, but they don't have that most basic quality of life. And and you've all spoken to that to some degree. Do you agree? Absolutely. You know, it's, it's absolutely critical. And I think that there, there's been a, a greater movement, you know, there's been kind of a natural progression to think about the way we use the land and the way we, you know, we produce and the, the way we eat. Um, and there's increasing awareness that, you know, there, there are people who pick the fruits and vegetables that we eat. There, there are communities that are dependent on that, that if you're really sort of concerned about the food you're consuming, you should also be concerned about the people who are dependent on that and their health and well-being is just as critical. And I think that um, it's something that we're, we're beginning to see more of. We still have a lot of work to be done to be able to make those connections, but at least understanding that, food to fork, that there are, there are communities that are affected and there's people that are affected and that we should be concerned about how their needs are being met or not being met. So, Craig, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about those connections in terms of the work of the California Endowment and the Leadership Council for Justice and Accountability. What are you all doing together in the San Joaquin Valley? What does it look like? And why have you come together to work there? Sure. So we are a funder who supports you know, our, our primary goal is to support the organizations that are across California supporting low-income communities. We're really focused on transformative change as, as opposed to transactional change. So, you know, a lot of foundations are, are interested in kind of the short-term investments. And, you know, let's buy some, let's buy a, a mobile you know, health van, which is very critical to meeting those needs. We're more interested in, and we're more, you know, we are committed to systems change. So ensuring that we're able to help support groups like Leadership Council and the residents they support so they become involved and part of decision-making. So that it's not about those transactional decisions, but it's about really thinking and rethinking the way communities are engaged in decision-making. So it's about long-term support. It's about being able to build the capacity of residents being engaged. And quite literally, I think in some respects, our work has really helped to fill the gaps when government isn't meeting the needs or not prioritizing the needs of those residents that are, are in greatest need. So working with groups like Leadership Council who very much work on the ground, but also work you know, regional, statewide, so they are able to be engaged in policy decision-making. So ensuring that those needs are addressed, but also being able to lift up those specific things that are going on in local communities and ensuring that we can learn from those experiences and be able to address and be able to support policies that help to create the opportunities to be able to advance health and well-being. So in the process, for us at the endowment, it's a lot about being able to support the grassroots, but also learning from their experiences, listening to their experiences, and ensuring that 
or able to take those and lift them up, either to influence policy or even being able to use you know, the great successes that we've seen and being able to use those in other regions and other communities. It's a huge state. Uh, we're not able to be in everywhere at once, but we're able to use those lessons learned and being able to use those successful initiatives to be able to really begin to address kind of those, being able to help improve the lives of those people. Um, Veronica said it's, a, it's about connecting people. It's about creating improvement, being able to understand that there are a lot of shared experiences, but there's also a lot of shared possibilities. So Veronica and Phoebe, uh, I wonder if you could speak to that as well. I'm, I don't know if you all are aware, but... Folks who work in the environmental justice space, which I do, look to this partnership between the California Endowment and a lot of the groups that they partner with and support as one of the most fundamental sort of transforming the relationship between philanthropy and grassroots advocacy. So we hope that people will take the model that you all are developing and begin to fund and invest more formidably in grassroots work. But I wonder, if Phoebe and Veronica, if you could give your perspective of what the partnership is like in terms of the work that you've been doing together with the California Endowment. You said it best. I think that it, uh, it's a really important, critical, indispensable um, partnership with the endowment who's, we think, bested us with a lot of strength to say this is, you know, this is what we're seeing in the region. This is what we're seeing in the communities we're working with. This is what we're seeing among community leaders that we're working with and allowing us the flexibility and resources to take on those challenges as is required and to have that. I don't know any better word than trust in the partnership to know that it's a really important movement that we're building and it's a long-term movement and giving us the time and place to develop that. I think to add to that, one of the unique sort of characteristics of the partnership with the endowment on, on multiple levels has been the sort of the California endowment recognizes the importance of community organizing and the importance of people power. And there are many in the philanthropic community who are more goal-oriented or policy-oriented. And the support from the California Endowment has allowed us to not only really invest time and resources in, in building that people power and building sustained civic engagement, but has also brought us together with a significant amount of other partners and other organizations who are doing similar work to allow us to leverage each other's skills and expertise and sort of bringing us together as part of a whole and not as part of working individually to address one issue. And the partnership has really allowed many of us from the very local to the state to come together as a whole and contributing to a whole as opposed to working in silo and working towards individual goals. If you could each share with us, how could people access your work, either Facebook or online web presence? How can people get in touch with you if they want to know more about what you're doing? Phoebe and Veronica and Craig, could you let our audience know? Our Facebook, honestly, is probably the best way to see our work, um, Leadership Council Facebook page, and then Twitter is at LCJ and and written out J. Our website is going through... um, a reboot. We hope to have that ready by the time this show airs, which is www.leadershipcouncil.org. Thank you. And Craig? Sure. You can learn more about the California Endowment at our website, www.calendow.org. We're also on Twitter at Cal uh, Dow. 
Uh, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram. We have a very strong social media presence. Um, we're one of the few foundations, I think, that has such a strong presence, particularly as it relates to the, the needs of boys and men of color, um, which is an important part of our work as well. So you can access any one of our social media platforms through calendar.org. Thank you. So our next three questions are really quick questions. We, uh, we call them the lightning round, and Mike is going to start, and we ask you these questions. We want you to say the first thing that comes into your head, and then we'll move on to the next question. So if you could implement one change or pick one leverage point that would lead to smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities, what would it be? Craig? I would ensure that the local decision makers are more reflective of the community. So. Phoebe? I would create like, stronger accountability metrics for both local and state government that tie to equity and fairness. Veronica? I would work to engage community in decision making and get at the funding mechanisms to ensure smarter, more sustainable, and equitable communities. The next question is, what one action could our listeners take to help build a more equitable and sustainable future? Get involved. Go to a local city or county hearing workshop meeting. Exactly that. Craig? I would say the greatest thing that we've learned is just learning how to listen. I think everyone wants to jump to conclusions that they have the best ideas on how to best help people. And I think that not only is that condescending, but it's also sometimes you don't always have the best ideas and it's important to just listen to the community that you want to help support and hearing what they think needs to happen. Here, here. If you're successful in the work that you are doing, what does the San Joaquin Valley look like 30 years from now? I think that it goes back to, I think our decision makers reflect our communities. I think the priorities on the decision making table on the local agendas on the state agendas reflect community priorities. I think there's more upward financial opportunity and economic opportunity for our communities. And we no longer live through this paradox of being the wealthiest agricultural region yet plagued by high levels of poverty. Well, I was going to say on a physical level, we see complete communities, for lack of a better word. The, the communities that exist now have safe drinking water, have access to good employment and educational opportunities. There's better employment opportunities in the valley. There's strong and sufficient housing, again, in communities. And we're seeing way more attention on where people are living rather than when, where property can be built and where industries can be placed. I don't have much more to add other than, you know, the communities that need, they have their most basic needs met, that they're healthy and vibrant communities, that also that people begin to recognize the importance of this region and that it's not just kind of a huge black box, that people really kind of understand how critical it is to not only California but the nation, but also that the people who live there are, are people who need some attention and people who are deserving of some prioritization because of such a huge role that they play in sort of all of our, our daily lives. <laughs> Well, thank you so very much for joining us. Um, it was really a pleasure for us, and we hope for our audience to hear about this powerful partnership between the California Endowment and the Leadership Council for Justice and Accountability and the, the really important and transformative work you are doing in the San Joaquin Valley. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate that. 
And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, the Local Government Commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infinite earth radio and Twitter by following at infinite earth radio. 